It's good to start a new series today called The Dearest Place on Earth. So a series that we've been looking forward to for some time, a series that's been in my mind for about the last year of wanting to give it and just working out the right time. And we felt that the Lord put on our hearts this time for this series. You see, one of the things I've found to be true in my life over many different occasions is that we'll never be passionate about that which we take for granted. Things that become the norm in our lives, things that we grow familiar with in our lives, we'll never be passionate about them because they're things that we just start taking for granted. And I found that to be true in my life on many different occasions. But one infamous occasion that sticks out in my mind is when I lived in the United States during the year 2000 and 2001, attending the Sovereign Race Pastors College. And during that year, I had an appendicitis. Well, the appendicitis, I thought I'd pulled my stomach muscle in sport. It apparently wasn't the case. I remember getting some of that heat rub and just covering my entire body in heat rub and just thinking, I'm sure it's going to help. Now, I'd never used heat rub in my life before. I just whacked it on everywhere. I was on fire within five minutes, and I couldn't get it off. It was just a nightmare. But anyway, a couple of days later, my appendix burst. I started to poison my whole body. That's when I realized I was very ill and got rushed to hospital. I had my appendix of what was left of it taken out and an awful lot of uh, drugs put into me to try and keep me alive as my appendix was poisoning my body. Well, a week later, after recovering from my appendicitis, I had to go back into hospital because I had a number of abscesses in my body that had been caused by the fact that my appendix had ruptured. Well, here's what happened. As I had to go back in for another operation, I didn't want to go in for another operation, but I had to go into an operation to have various drains put in, in my body. And I was told that my operation would be 8 a.m. in the morning, which meant I couldn't drink any water from midnight the night before. I was okay with that. I'm not a big fan of water anyway. So it gets to 11 o'clock at night. Emma's saying to me, do you want to drink a water or anything? Because you can't have anything after this. And, ah, oh, fine, I'm not really too fast. And half past 11, do you want to drink a water? Not, not really, darling, but thanks anyway. And 11.59, would you like a drink of water? Not really. I'm not thirsty at all. I'll be fine, but thanks anyway. Well, midnight comes on. My throat is like a desert. <laughs> at midnight, I'm suddenly like, oh my, I'm, I'm really probably desperately in need of a drink. I'm so thirsty. Em, can I have a drink? And she's like, what? what? It's, it's, it's only just over. No, no, love, eight hours. It's eight hours before but I'm so thirsty. I may not make it through the night. You know, I just felt so thirsty in that moment. I was just desperate for a drink. I remember just staying up nearly all night just thinking of like fountains in the desert. You know, just, I just, every dream related to water. I was on a water slide, just wanted to drink it. Everything related to how thirsty I was for the rest of the night. And I remember it well. If you had asked me at 11.59, Dave, are you passionate about water? I would have looked at you very strange and thought that was the most stupid and ridiculous question I've ever heard in my life. I said, well, no, not really. I don't think I'm passionate about water at all. It's, it's everywhere. You can drink it whenever you want. But at midnight, I was the most passionate person about water alive. I just craved it. I wanted it. I realized at midnight how valuable water is. And yet because water is so familiar, such a norm, something I can so quickly take for granted. We will never be passionate about things that we take for granted. And the truth is, I think we can do that with the local church as well. We'll grow familiar with it. It becomes the norm. It's just what we do on Sundays, right? We go to church. 
And yet we forget what this word tells us about how special the church really is. See, C.H. Spurgeon, one of my historical heroes, says it this way. He says, If I had never joined a church till I'd found one that was perfect, I should never have joined one at all. And the moment I did join it, if I had found one, I should have spoiled it, for it would not have been a perfect church after I'd become a member of it. Still, imperfect as it is, it is the dearest place on earth to us. Mr. Spurgeon knew that he couldn't go looking for the perfect church because it didn't exist. And if he had found it, as soon as he had joined it, it wouldn't be perfect anymore because he was in it. But he also knew that biblically defined, imperfect though the local church is, it is the dearest place on earth to us. Well, my friends, at the start of 2017, I really believe that the Lord wants to envision us afresh and how dear the local church really is. I believe he wants to stir our passions and our affections and our admiration for what the local church really is as biblically defined so that we don't grow familiar with it, we don't just consider it as a norm, but we stand with Mr. Spurgeon and go, yeah, the church is amazing. Imperfect though it is, it's the dearest place on earth to me. Well, only God can do that. And only his word can shine in our lives to affect us in that. So let's pray. Then we'll get into it together. Well, Lord, as we stand at the outset of this series, in our hearts we kneel before you, aware that we need you. In a life that bombards us with so many things that claim to be the dearest place on earth, Lord, would you declutter not only our homes, but our minds as to what really is most important? Lord, did you wash us with your word today and over this entire series, over this next two months? Would you wash us with the word so that we may be cleared away in our minds to see your church as it really is, the dearest place on earth? Do that by your grace, we ask. Amen. The title in for today's message is The Church, The Dearest Place on Earth. And the question that I want to ask and indeed then seek to answer is simply this. What is it about the church that makes it the dearest place on earth? What is it that is taught in the Bible that really does make the church the dearest place? place on earth. I mean, as Jesse started this morning, I think he's right. You know, it's, you read through travel brochures and you're led to believe that Fiji is the dearest place on earth. And then you look at the beaches and you're like, oh yes, I want to go to the dearest place on earth, you know? Or the Whit Sundays, you click online on the booking.com and you're like, no, that is the dearest place on earth. And you just think, yes, you know, what do you mean the church is the dearest place on earth? For others, you probably think Disneyland, surely that's the dearest place on earth. I mean, being by the castle. It was just the dearest place on earth. Or for others of you, you probably think, when I retire, I'm going to move to an idyllic beach cottage. And I've already seen the brochures. And that is the dearest place on earth. You know, we all have in our minds different versions of what it really means to have a dearest place on earth. And yet Spurgeon calls the church the dearest place on earth. Something that is echoed by Peter and James and John and Paul throughout Scripture. 
Something that is emphasized by the Lord Jesus Christ himself, that the church, ultimately the church, the local church, is the dearest place on earth. And so what's up with that? What is it about the church that makes the church the dearest place on earth to us? Well, the Bible contains within it many, many metaphors about the church that are there to help us see what it is that makes the church the dearest place on earth. And today I want to pick on just four of them. Four that I think are primary in Scripture and that I think will really help to answer the question, what is it about the church that makes it the dearest place on earth? And so four points this morning is the first. What is it about the church that makes it the dearest place on earth? Number one, it's the reality that together we're a temple. That together, when we gather as Sovereign Grace Church of Sydney, together we're a temple. Listen to these words in Ephesians 2, verses 19 through 22. Paul says, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Isn't that amazing? You are no longer strangers and aliens. Why? Because that's who you were. When you were dead in your transgressions and sins, you were strangers and aliens to one another. You had nothing to do with one another. You had not even liked for one another. But now, you're fellow citizens. You're saints together and members of the household of God being built together for something, being built together into a temple, a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That's amazing. Together, being built by God as a dwelling place for God, by the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 3 verse 16, Paul says it this way, he emphasizes it. He says, do you not know, clearly they didn't know, do you not know that you are, a, that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are the temple. You know, that statement is an absolute profundity in Scripture. And to these early Christians that were primarily Jews, that statement would have been absolutely staggering. We, now as people, as we gather, are the temple of God. See, in the Old Testament, the place where the the temple was the place where God, in his grace, would meet with his people. And so each and every year, the Jews, primarily, would go to the temple over various different occasions in a desire to meet with God, to sacrifice to him, to worship him, and to encounter him. And then one day of the year, the great high priest would enter the Holy of Holies, the very center of the temple, the place where the very presence of God would dwell, He would go beyond the curtain. He would have on his breastplate all of the gems of all of the nation of Israel. And he would go in there to encounter God and to make a sacrifice before the Lord. 
Because the temple was the place where God would meet with sinful mankind. That's the way it was for hundreds and hundreds of years. For hundreds of years, all the Jews would gather as pilgrims to go and be at the temple to encounter God. And yet when Jesus Christ died and rose again, everything changed in an absolute moment. In an absolute moment, everything changed. Because when Jesus was on the cross and he cried out, It is finished! That temple curtain that was only gone through once a year by the great high priest ripped in two from top to bottom. That was a staggering moment in history. See, that wasn't just a little curtain like, you know, you pull in your kids' rooms at night. Oh, there we go, all closed up at night. No, that, that curtain was amazing. It was 60 feet high, 20 feet wide, and 4 inches thick. When they cleansed it once a year, it would take 100 priests to get it down and then wash it. That temple, was, that temple curtain was in two parts, huge, huge sheets. The, the, witness, the, the, the width of a man's hand. Huge, huge sheets. And it said that when they clasped it together with clasps, not even two horses would be able to pull it apart. And yet as Jesus cried out, It is finished. That temple curtain from top to bottom, the clasps broke. Ping, 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 ping. Entirely down. And it was God letting us know that I'm coming to you now. All you who put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Through him you now have access to me. It's no longer the great high priest once a year. Whoever comes to me and puts their faith in my son, through his blood you will now be acceptable to me. And when Jesus then rose again, he made it clear to his disciples that it's on you now, you 12 men, that I'm going to build the church. The church is going to go forward from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the end of the earth. And what are those local churches going to be? They're going to be temples. New temples. Built not with stones, but built with living stones. People. People that are going to come together and be built together by God himself as the very dwelling place for God. You know, God then tells us in James chapter 4, verse 8, Draw near to me, and I will draw near to you. Church, do you hear that? And do you stand in awe of that? Draw near to me. When you gather as a temple, when you gather as a local church, draw near to me and I will draw near to you. You are the temple now. The curtain has been torn in two. Where two or more are gathered in the name of Jesus Christ, I will be with you. Draw near to me and I will draw near to you. It's incredible. It was staggering to those early Christians and it should be staggering to us as well. What is it that makes the church the dearest place on earth? Well, number one, it's the reality that we're a temple. See, my friends, we can encounter God when we are by ourselves, period. But there is something unique happens when we gather as an entire temple, when we all come together. Donald Whitney writes about it in Spiritual Disciplines Within the Church. He says this. He says, God will manifest his presence to you in congregational worship, in ways you can never know, even in the most glorious secret worship. That's because you're not only a temple of God as an individual, but the Bible says, and far more often, that Christians collectively are God's temple. That God manifests his presence in different ways to the living stones of his temple when they are gathered 
than he does to them when they are apart. And so he does. Matthew 18, verse 20, we read, For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. My friends, that's in part what makes the church the dearest place on earth. Because when we gather, Jesus is with us. And when we gather together, we have access to the Holy of Holies. When we gather together, God moves in distinct and different ways to that which he does when we are by ourselves. My friends, that's why we regularly encourage you on an ongoing basis to be on time and indeed early. That's why. Do you see that? We want people to be on time and come early. In part, because I think it's honoring to the band. They've been here at 8.30 in the morning, getting ready and preparing to lead us in worship to the Lord. The worship leader's given himself many hours during that week to cry out to God for grace and work out his plan for the morning. So in part, we honor them. In part, we get to come early so that we can engage with visitors so that we can make sure they feel welcome to our family and a part of what we're doing. Yet the main reason why we encourage you to be on time and be early is because the Bible says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And as your lead pastor, I can't understand for a moment why you would want to miss a minute of that. What could be more important than encountering the risen Christ? What could possibly be more important than going into the Holy of Holies, clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and being with the King of Kings. What could possibly keep us away? And if I said to you, next Sunday morning, guess what? It's quite incredible. 10.30, the Queen's going to be here. I very much doubt you'd be wandering in at 20 to 11 with a coffee in your hand. You'd be here, you'd be preparing. We're going to meet the Queen. Kids, let's go! We're going to meet the Queen! I have good news for you. You're going to meet somebody far greater than the Queen. God himself is coming next week at 10.30. God himself has told us that where two or more are gathered together, I'll be with you. God himself, the one who spins the galaxies, the one who died in your place at Calvary, the one who numbers the hairs on your head, he has told me that next week he's coming at 10.30. And he is. And he's been here this week and last week and the week before. That's why we encourage you to be here on time. I don't want you to miss a minute of that. I don't want you to miss a moment of being with God himself as we gather as a temple. You know, when I lived in the United States for a year at Covenant Life Church, I think that was a church that really opened my eyes to the reality of the church being a temple. And that church affected me like none others. Because here's what would happen to that church. There was 2,000 people in that church at the time when Emma and I lived there. Church would start at 10 o'clock. At 9.30, the room was already filled with people. Spending time together. They're aware that we're a family. The band would finish off practicing. They would go pray. At about two minutes to 10, the band would come out. Bob Coughlin would come out, who you know, start playing the piano a little bit. I kid you not. Half the people in the congregation at that point would stand to their feet because they're ready. They want to encounter God. They want to be with Him. And as soon as the band start playing, then boom, 2,000 people in a room ready because they want to meet with the risen King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I dream, I dream about us being that type of church. Not so that the rest of Sydney goes, wow, how did you do that? I'm not really interested in that. I dream about being that type of church because I want to ensure that we understand that we're a temple. 
And I want you to encounter the risen King of Kings each and every week. I do. I want you to encounter God. That's why we encourage you to be here on time each and every week. Why is the church the dearest place on earth? Well, number one, it's because in all reality that together we're the temple. Incredible things happen when we gather in the name of Jesus. But that's not all. Number two, it's the reality that together we're a family. We really are a family. You know, Mark chapter 3, one of my favorite stories in the Gospel of Mark, there's that point where Jesus' mom and his brothers try and find out where Jesus is. They hear his teaching in places. They hear he's doing these healings. They're not sure what's going on there. And so they want to turn up basically to get their brother and their son and kind of, you know, hug him a little bit, give him a bit of a there, there, and take him home because they think he's gone mad. And this is what happens. Mark chapter 3, verse 31 says, And his mother and his brothers came. And standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister, and mother. That incredible. Jesus Christ in that moment is inaugurating a new family. And it won't be through the blood that flows through our veins. It'll be through the blood that he spilt from his veins on Calvary. All those who put their faith in Jesus Christ, they're not just mates. Hey, mate. Or they're not just bros. Yo, bro. They're family. Genuinely brothers and sisters, and mothers. Reuben Welch says it this way. He says, Of course we believe in the total adequacy of Jesus Christ to meet the total need of the total person. But we must remember this also. He saves into the context of the community of faith. And so it isn't Jesus and me, but Jesus and we. Isn't that beautiful? See, we need Jesus, don't we? We need him. When we're going through our lives, we need him more than anybody else. And yet the reality is, so often we need people to be Jesus to us. And that's why he's given us family. He's put us together with brothers and sisters to help us and aid us for the glory of God. And one of the things that I'm so grateful for about this church, one of the things that I'm so thankful to God for as I consider you, is the way you really do do family together. It's beautiful. You know, one of the highlights of my year every year is the Thanksgiving service. Because you hear people talking about their real lives. What's really going on in their lives and what's really gone on and all that the Lord has done. I really love then hearing from Priscilla and David at the Thanksgiving service. And they're just talking about, hey, you know, it was a challenging year for us, you know. The study going on, we didn't really have a lot of money. We shared with our life group about not really having a lot of money. They helped us budget. And the next thing we know, there was a box of fruit and veg on our doorstep. Now, I did at that point think, poor things. And Maccas would have been a lot better. But I'm aware for them, that's what they needed. And I'm sitting there and I'm just, I'm just, I'm thanking God that that 
is an evidence of grace in this local church because that is family. When John Bush is up here sharing about the challenges that they had walked through during the year with particularly one of their children and the way people had come around them and sought to care for them and been bothered about them. That's family. That's care. That's affection. That's love. And it's family that we've been on the end of many, many times. I mean, the greatest sacrifice for us, and I know for the Williams and the Woods as well, moving out here to plant a church in Sydney, was that we don't have any family here. And there is family members 10,000 miles away, so we won't be popping home for the weekend. And we had to face the fact that in all reality, although we would see them maybe once every two to three years, our kids won't grow up with their cousins. They won't grow up around grandparents. They won't be spending time with auntie and uncles. And we won't either. Because we're called to sacrifice for the furtherance of his work in Sydney. And God's been so gracious to us in that and brought many joys to us in that. But here's one of the greatest joys he's brought to us in that. You have become our family. You are our brothers and our sisters and our mothers. I remember when the church first started and my friend Dan Gavetta, who was a fellow pastor at Christ Church, um, died suddenly. He had a brain aneurysm. He's younger than me, but went out to CrossFit, had a brain aneurysm and died. Left his wife and four small children. And we had no money to get back. We'd only just moved here. And we had four different people in this local church who barely knew us. Say, we'll pay for you and your wife to go back. And we were overwhelmed because we had not expected that at all. Just recently, we went on a camping trip. My camping trips are always adventurous. (laughs) Halfway there, exactly halfway there, 100 miles, 100 kilometers. And then the car decides to stop. There's seven people in the car. The roof rack is filled. The trailer is filled. The car is not moving. I'm accelerating, right? The accelerator's going like this. And the car's going like this. I'm aware that we are in trouble here. I don't think we're going to make it this year unless we do something dramatic. So we pulled over the car. We're trying to figure out what on earth to do. And I decided, well, one of the things we should do is obviously take a picture and put it on Facebook minimally so people can laugh at the adventures of Dave Taylor once again in his camping trips. And honestly, that's why we did it. We thought at least give other people a chuckle. And yet within minutes, genuinely unexpected to me, I had several people calling, texting. Hey, maybe we'll come and get you. We'll give you a car to borrow during the week. What do you need? How can we help you? And you just think, if nothing else came out of that very expensive, annoying moment... It was another reminder that we do have family here. We have brothers and sisters and mothers who care for us deeply. And I know you experience that same thing. That's what makes the church so dear. Because it's family. And my friends, I want to encourage you then, as we look out at 2017 together, would we do family together then all the more? I'm aware in a group this size, there's going to be some of you minimally sitting there going, well, I don't think I experienced family like that. And you'll want to speak to me later. Here's what I want to encourage you with. As you look out on a fresh year, to those in your life group and to those in this church, be the brother 
or sister or mother to them that you want them to be to you. Don't just sit on the side and wait for them to do something. You go be a brother or sister or mother to them. Start loving them. Start caring for them in the way that you want them to do to you. And together, my friends, then, would we strive side by side for the gospel this year as a family. You know what a family means? Let me just give you some outlines, some scripture. Just, just listen. I'm not going to tell you every text where it's from, but just, just listen to what the Father instructs his children to do, us. It says in his word, to love one another, be joined to one another, honor one another, to rejoice with one another, to weep with one another, to care for one another, to serve one another, carry one another's burdens, forgive one another. Bear with one another and to build one another up and spur one another on and pray for one another and offer hospitality to one another. You know, my friends, they're not sovereign grace instructions to you. They're not. Don't worry about sovereign grace. Don't think about me. I'm not the issue. They're God's instructions to you. He's your father. I just sit as part of you. And there is instructions to us. Open up your lives to them. Bear with them. Forgive them. Care for them. Pray for them. Show hospitality to them. Love them as family. Why? Because they are family. Because through the blood of Jesus Christ, they became related. I thank God for the way you operate in that as a local church. You, I am your biggest fan in the way you operate as family, as a local church. Let's do it all the more. Let's do it all the more as we see another year approach. Because it's in part what makes the church the dearest place on earth. But it's not only that. It's the third reason. The third reason that what is it that makes the church the dearest place on earth? Well, number three, it's the reality that together we're a body. We're a body. And not just any body. We're the body of Christ. Isn't that amazing? Together, we are actually the hands and feet of Jesus himself. Ephesians 1 verse 22, where Paul talks about what the Father has done for the Son. He says, And he, the Father, put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. (laughs) Is that not amazing to you? The Father has given all things to the Son as head over the church, which is his body. What is his body? Well, it's the fullness of him who fills all in all. It is a profound reality that as a local church, we are the body of Christ. So make no mistake, my friends, we have a head. Okay, I am not your head. You would not want that. I am not your head. Jesus Christ is your head. Jesus Christ is the head of this local church. He is the one who gives us sight and direction and life and strength. He is the one that is directing us and calling us forward and envisioning us for the future in our local church. And yet without doubt, as part of the body, we have a part to play. So in Ephesians 4, Paul encourages us and calls us to get connected and committed 
and to play our parts in the body so that it can build itself up in love. That's why he says to the Corinthians that to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For everybody is gifted. Do you realize that? Every single person in the room, you've got eyes to see me in this moment, which is most of you unless you're asleep. You have a gift. You have a part to play in this local church. Something that God's given you. But you're meant to use then in a way that's connected and committed for the glory of the Lord. Not just running Lone Ranger or solo for Jesus, but connected and committed, being used by you so that the body builds itself up in love. We have a head. His name is Jesus. But we are also part of the body. We are his hands and feet. And accordingly, we have a mission. We have a mission in the world to be the hands and feet of Jesus himself. We are called to go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. You know, at different times, people say, I just don't know what I'm meant to be doing with my life. Oh, I do. Matthew 28. You're meant to go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son. That's the call of God on our lives because we're Christians. We're disciple makers. We've been given a gift. His name is Jesus, and we're called to spread him. We're called to make disciples of all nations. And the reality is, if you're like me, that mission is a little daunting. Do you find it daunting? Do you find it daunting that Sovereign Grace Church of Sydney is called by the grace of God to win Sydney for Jesus Christ? Does anybody else find that slightly difficult? It's challenging, isn't it? And in grace, Jesus tells us that not only has he called us to that, but that we will be never alone in that. That's why he says at the end of that great commission, and lo, I will be with you to the end of the age. You're not alone. I'm going to call you to it, and I'm going to be with you. But more even than that, as part of that, there's going to be a body that's with you. A group. A family. A body that you can be helped by. You can be taught by. You can be counseled by. You can be prayed for by. You're never alone in evangelism and mission. We're not all meant to be lone rangers for Jesus. We're together as a body, even in our evangelistic work. You know, you see it in John 13. I remember reading it for the first time and just being amazed because I'd never really seen it before. But in John chapter 13, Jesus, as the King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus is the one who breathed out the earth, who sustains all things in this very moment, gets on his knees and wraps a towel around his waist and starts washing people's feet. It's incredible. He's the king. He's the king of kings and lord of lords, and yet he gets on his hands and knees. It'd be like seeing Queen Elizabeth get on her hands and knees and start washing the servants' feet. Everybody'd be like, what is she doing? How much more Jesus? And yet he gets on his hands and his feet and he starts washing people's feet. And then at the end of doing that, he looks at his disciples, takes his towel off, sits beside him afresh. He says this to them. A new commandment I now give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. For by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. 
Isn't that beautiful? How is it that Sydney is going to see Jesus? How is it in part that your friends are going to learn and see Jesus? Well, they're going to know there's something different about you as a disciple of Christ when they see the way you love the other people in your body. And the way you talk about people in your local church. And the way you care for people in your local church. And the way you serve people in your local church. There is going to be a world that are going to look on and see that. And see, there's something different about that. What is that? What is that about? See, in Ephesians 3, I love it. The Apostle Paul tells us that it's through the church that the manifold wisdom is, of God is made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. I love that. It's like this alien supernatural bit that I just think is amazing. The very angels look on at the way we do life together and that causes them to look back at God and go, you are amazing. Do you see what they're doing? They were aliens, they were strangers, they didn't even like each other, but you have created them into a family and and now they care for each other. You, You are amazing. That's what goes on in the heavenly realms when churches are linking arms and truly being family together for the glory of the God and being a body. And yet the truth is, as we gather and unite side by side in the gospel and we love one another, Sydney itself should look on and go, what is that? What is that? I never hear you gossiping about people in your local church. I never hear you speaking bad of them. I just hear you grateful for them and thanking this God for them. What is that? For through this, your love for one another, people will know that you are my disciples. My friends, we need each other, don't we? When it comes to mission, we need each other's prayers, we need each other's encouragements, but I kid you not, we need each other's presence as well. Because when our unbelieving friends come into this body, it's then that they'll see something different. Something for them that is attractive. That is Jesus. What is it about the local church then? That makes it the dearest place on earth? Well, it's the fact that it's a temple and a body, and a family. But then there's one more. Just in closing, it's the reality that together, we're a bride. And for me, this always blows me away. See, in Ephesians chapter 5, when Paul is addressing wives and husbands, this is what he says. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And he says this to husbands. Notice what he says about the way he is with his own bride. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And gave himself up for her. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved his wife and gave himself up for her. Now, the reality that we are a bride is an incredible thing. One of the privileges I have as a pastor has been on many, many occasions and to marry people and to get to stand close to them as it's happening, and to see their faces as this is all taking place. 
And one of my favorite bits, without doubt, is when the bride comes in and everybody's looking at the bride and I do momentarily look at the bride, but I'm primarily looking at the groom because I want to see his face. I want to see what he's doing. And each and every time it's been a special moment for me, but I don't think I'll ever forget Nick Gordon. Because <laughs> here's what happened. All of Vaughn's bridesmaids come in. But then the grand entrance is obviously Yvonne. And as soon as she starts coming down, which must be the longest aisle probably in the world, as soon as she starts coming down and then she comes around the corner, she looks stunning. Nick, his legs start going. But his face... I think in that moment he's forgotten anybody else is in the room because his bride's coming down and he starts weeping. He's affected because this is his bride and she is coming to him. Our friends, you don't need to be married to understand a bridegroom's love for his bride. Just look at his face in that moment and you will see everything that you need to know. And yet each and every time, that bridegroom's face is only a dim reflection for how the Savior feels about his bride. The church. The local church. Because God so loved the world that he sent his son And his son so loved the church, his bride, that he gave his life for her. Because he loves her. He's ecstatic about her. And outside of the Father and the Spirit, there is no one that the Savior loves more than his bride. And one day he's coming back for her. And he's going to take her home. And start in his commentary of Ephesians. Commenting on Ephesians 5 says the following. He says, What stands out in Paul's development of this theme of the bride is the sacrificial steadfastness of the heavenly bridegroom's covenant love for her. He chose her from eternity past. He set his affections upon her. And then buying her back from sin, he gently sanctifies and sanctifies and cleanses her, preparing her for himself. His love for his bride is not flighty. It's not given to whim. For it is zealous. And it is unchanging. My friends, how does the Savior feel about the church? Oh, he's ecstatic about her. Because that's his bride. He loves her with the most deepest love that we could ever imagine a bridegroom to have, even to the point of death. The reason why he got on the back of a donkey and entered in Jerusalem alone, the reason why he went through the Garden of Gethsemane alone, the reason why he hung at Calvary dying alone, Because he loves his bride. He loves his church. And he was giving his life as a ransom for her. 
John Stott continues. On earth, she is often in rags and tatters, stained and ugly, despised and persecuted. But one day, she will be seen for what she is, nothing less than the bride of Christ, free from spots, wrinkles, and any other disfigurement, holy and without blemish, beautiful and glorious. It is to this constructive end that Christ has been working and is continuing to work. The bride does not make herself presentable. It is the bridegroom who labors to beautify her in order to present her to himself. Isn't that beautiful? Something he's doing even now in our midst. Through our Sunday gathering, through our life groups, through our one-on-ones, the Lord is present and at work beautifying us, preparing us for himself, preparing for us for that moment when he's going to come back. My friends, we will never be passionate about that which we take for granted. We'll never be passionate about something that we just consider the norm or we just grow familiar with and we forget what it's all about. The church, when we see her for all that she really is, is incredible. Because together we're a temple. Together, when we dwell together in unity, we're a place where God then himself dwells to encounter his people. Together we're a family, not just a club, but brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers for the glory of the Lord, standing together and caring for one another as if we had the same blood running through our veins. Together we're a body with a head and a part to play and a mission to go on. And together we're a bride, his bride, his bride that he's making ready even now, his wife that he's passionate about, more than anything else. And so here's my prayer in response to today and in response to this entire series. It's my prayer that we would all then say with one voice, imperfect though it is, may it be the dearest place on earth to us. Let's pray. Well, Lord, imperfect though it is, starting with the lead pastor, may it nonetheless be the dearest place on earth to us. Because, Lord, this is your temple. This is your family. This is your body. And this is your bride. Oh, Lord, did you fan into flame our affections? and our appreciation and gratitude for the local church. Lord, would you stir our hearts to fresh passions built upon your word as we see the church for who she truly is. Lord, would we not take her for granted, but would we be amazed that we even get to be a part? And in doing so, would we transfer all glory to you? In Jesus' name, amen.